So growing up in the 90s, I was a 90s kid, uh, there was always something that was always on my birthday and Christmas wish lists. I don't know if you, remember, uh, if you guys remember, but there was something called Power Wheels back in the day. There were these kid-sized, battery-powered cars that kids would drive around the neighborhood and drive through your, probably your lawn. For the girls, they had these Barbie Lamborghinis. For the guys, they had Ford F-150s. And they had this commercial, the Power Wheels, Power Wheels. I don't know. It's stuck in my head even, even today. And I just remember watching those commercials and just being so jealous of the kids just driving around in their mini Corvettes with their fake car phones. I'm like, oh, I want one of those things. I want one. Never got one. But uh, I remember going to my friend's house, probably in third grade or so, and saw his garage door go open, and there it was. He had a Power Wheel Jeep, and I was, I was so excited. But then, to my surprise, I looked at him, and he didn't share my, my excitement, um, did not match my enthusiasm for what, for what he had. It kind of looked like he didn't even care that he had it, and I really think if I would have asked him for it, he probably would have just given it to me. The, the joy he must have had when he first received it had faded away over time. And I'm sure many parents know this feeling. You give a gift to your kid, they're so excited when they get it, and then months, weeks, maybe minutes later, they're on to the next thing. The joy that you saw on their face when they first were given this gift has now faded. And I fear for many of us that this is our own attitude towards the gospel. We may have had a lot of joy and excitement when we first believed, but then over time, the story of our redemption has become so familiar that maybe we have become even bored with it. Maybe you've been in church for, for a long time and you've heard the story of the gospel often, and it's almost become like white noise to you when you hear it. I think this happens a lot too with like familiar passages in Scripture that we've heard often. I mean, it happens to me that even passages that we are going to look at today, probably familiar to many of you, maybe you have memorized uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 when you were a little kid. And, and I would venture to guess that when you read these verses now, um, they may sound so familiar that you've forgotten how glorious these truths actually are. The truths that were so pivotal in our conversion have become now like my friend's power wheel Jeep, just kind of gathering dust in the garage of our hearts. And I wonder if we've become so accustomed to being citizens of heaven that we've forgotten that we were once citizens of another land. The tragedy of gospel familiarity is that it can often numb us to the depth of our sin it can blind us to the goodness of God, and it can cause us to live in such a way where grace is a given and not a gift. So today, as we look at the, this gospel-rich text, I want us to refresh our hearts and our minds in the glory of our redemption. And in order to do that, I want us to look at three truths that we cannot forget. The first, that our sin is worse than we realize that God's love is greater than we can imagine, and Christ's amazing grace will surely lead us home. So first, our sin is worse than we realize. In order for us not to drift towards being apathetic towards the gospel, we first need to remember who we were before we met Jesus and remember how much sin had characterized our identity. 
If you could, turn your, our passage with me in verses 1 to 3, and we'll see this. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In these verses, I see Paul give us pretty clear three descriptions of the depth of our sin before we came to Christ. The first uh, way we see Paul describe our life before Christ is that it was a life that was characterized by death. We see it pretty clearly in verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead. He does not tell us that we were lost in need of some direction, or that we were naive in need of some education, or that we were suppressed in need of some self-expression. But instead, he tells us that we were dead. Now, what in the world does Paul mean here by we were dead? You're like, I feel pretty alive. I don't know what's going on. He says, he means like, we're, yeah, we're physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. Which means in our own strength, we are absolutely incapable of, uh, to respond to God's call upon our lives. Those who are spiritually dead cannot positively respond to God. And Paul makes this really clear in Romans 8, verse 6 through 8, when he tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh is death, and it is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So before we met Christ, we were incapable of pleasing God. In our deadness, we had the same chance of responding positively to God's commands than if we were to ask a corpse to fix us a glass of iced tea. But we often think that before Christ, we were just very sick and only in need of a doctor to give us the right type of medicine. Yet, yet that is not how Paul describes us here. It's, it's totally, it's worse than that. We instead are dead on arrival. The doctor has pronounced us dead. Now, for many of you in the medical community, or maybe you've seen some medical TV dramas, when the time of death is called, the nurses are not administering any more medication. They are not trying to resuscitate. Why not? Well, because their efforts, right, would be meaningless. They'd be useless. The dead will not respond. When people die, the struggle for life is over. There is no more hope. So, too, it is with us and the spiritual state of our hearts before Christ. Not sick and dying, but dead and unresponsive. And look, it gets even worse. Secondly, Paul tells us that in our former way of life, we were like slaves following the course of this world, the devil, and our flesh, unable to escape their chains. If you look back at verses 1 to 3 with me, we'll, we'll see this. Look at some of the descriptors you see here. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in whom we all once lived 
in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We have to be careful to realize in our spiritual deadness before Christ, we are not just inactive in our response to God's call. We're not just sitting there lying inactive to, to what his, his call would be. You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't long for God. We longed for sin. We walked in our sin. We were willing servants to our passions and desires. And elsewhere in Scripture, it says we suppressed the truth about God. We freely submitted to the will of the prince of the power of the air, and we were happy with our choice. Before Christ, sin was like our favorite stuffed animal or blanket that we had as a kid. We would take it everywhere with us. When we were afraid, we'd hold it tight. When we were alone, it kept us company. When we had a bad day, sin was the only thing that would make us feel better. We were convinced that no other toy or comfort would ever make us happier as sin did. Sin was our best friend. And we were happy to walk hand in hand with sin on the wide shores of this world. Skipping from footprint to footprint footprint that the father of lies had left for us to follow. Now, it may be easier for us to look back and see how much sin had gripped our hearts. But when we were slaves to sin, it didn't often feel like like bondage. You know, we felt pretty free to do what we wanted. We thought no one was telling us what to do. Yet all the while, we were buying into Satan's lies like everyone else. Lies that told us, you know, it's not hurt anyone. So what's the what's the big deal? You know, this, this sin makes you happy, and, and God wouldn't want you to be unhappy, right? So why not go do it? You know, you'll change when you get older, but now is the time to have fun. You know, you're a good person, and, you know, this will be okay because God will just forgive you. You know, it kind of seems like God's abandoned you. So I think it's time to do it your own way now. We believe these lies. And before Christ, our will was in bondage to our passions. And so we listened to the prince of the power of the air and chose the wide path, the course of this life that looked respectable in the eyes of the world. If that wasn't bad enough, Paul finally tells us that along with being dead in sin and enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, he also tells us that we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So when my wife Jessica and I were dating, uh, she volunteered at a women's hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And one of her jobs at this hospital was to try to soothe the babies that were in the newborn ICU. And I remember her telling me uh, that one of her jobs one day was to try to soothe the babies um, that were born to mothers with drug addictions. She told me that these babies, as they were developing in the wombs, their, their mother's drug addiction had passed on to their babies. So when these babies were born, they didn't scream or cry for food or because they were scared, but rather they screamed for the drugs that their mothers also craved. Jessica would tell me that there was a different type of cry to these babies. And no matter how long you held them, No matter how much pure milk you fed them, 
they would not be comforted. And so too it is with us. Our first father Adam went after the desires of his flesh and he passed down his cravings to all mankind throughout all generations. No son of Adam or daughter of Eve is exempt. Yet this, as you guys know, is not what the world teaches us about human nature. The world often thinks that we are born as a blank slate or that there's some inner goodness in us that just needs to be let out. But that is not what the scriptures teach us. Just listen to some of these passages about the nature that we are born with. King David in Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3.10, No one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, his one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So that the natural state of our hearts does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Does not go after the things that honor God. We are by nature children of wrath. And sin, it plays no favorites. J.C. Ryle, one of my, my favorite authors, he tells us this. He says that sin is a vast moral disease which affects the whole human race, every rank and class and name and nation and people and tongue. It is not a result of bad parenting, bad company or bad examples, but it is a family disease that we inherit from our parents. We were not born spiritually alive and then became dead. We were not born free and then became enslaved, but rather by nature, we were condemned under the righteous wrath of Almighty God. And it is so crucial for us to understand the depth and pervasiveness of our sin because a failure to recognize the utter helplessness we find ourselves from birth will lead us to believe that there is an easy or natural remedy for our spiritual condition. Without an accurate knowledge of our family history, we will fail to find a successful treatment. One of the really unique parts about my story of faith is that I was adopted at a very early age and was placed in a loving Christian home. For some of you, maybe you have adopted kids or you know somebody who's adopted. Maybe you know this, but people who are adopted experience doctor visits very differently than most people. If you know when you go to the doctor, they give you a nice big long paperwork to fill out and it's a family history report, right? And so you got to go through there like, you know, did, did grandma have this? Do you know if Uncle Jim had any of this? It's like, I, I don't remember. Well, for me, I get the luxury of taking that piece of paper and going and writing adopted over every piece of paper. I just adopted, adopted, adopted and turn it right back in. It takes 30 seconds. It's great. However, though, it's a little unnerving because I really have no idea what type of diseases or cancers run in my family. You know, and I often live thinking like, hey, I'm not susceptible to really anything. You know, I got, I got no history, no, no one telling me what, what I could get. But if the doctors are trying to treat me, they are at a distinct disadvantage because they have no family history on me. 
Similarly, without an accurate knowledge of our spiritual family history, we will fail to find a successful remedy for sin. We will misdiagnose our symptoms. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, Openness Unhindered, says this, When we live our lives based on good intentions, good deeds, and well-meaning self-diagnosis, we too, without accurate history of our lineage in Adam, look at our lives with a dangerous absence of information. If we do not recognize the depth of our depravity, we will settle for solutions that will not acquit us on the day of judgment. Instead of looking to Christ for our standard of holiness, we will look to the world to approve our lives. We will take pride in our labels of nice, good, moral people that our neighbors and our friends and family give us. We will be content to live with secret sins and at peace with the world, not realizing that our eternal destiny is the same as theirs. So in order to understand the glory of the gospel, we have to remind ourselves that our sin is certainly worse than we realize. So then you may be thinking, well, what is the solution to our condemned state? You know, is there a successful remedy? And how can we be saved from the, from the wrath to come? How can we who are spiritually dead be made alive? How can we be set free from the passions of our flesh? Who will save us from this body of death? Look at your Bibles. We'll see it in verse 4. It's just two words. But God. But God. Again, you were not saved in your deadness because you grew up in a good family or because you deduced through supreme intellect that Christianity was the best way, but rather it was God who interrupted your passionate pursuit of evil and took you from the kingdom of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. The only thing more powerful than our sinful nature is the sovereign power of God to save. And in order for us to be saved from our deadness, we needed a God who could raise the dead. In order to be set free from bondage, we needed a God who could break our chains. And in order to escape the wrath of God, we needed a God who was willing to provide a substitute. A God whose love is greater than we can imagine. So where can we find a God like this? Well, we get to read about him in verses 4 to 7. If you look there with me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So over this dark backdrop of our depravity, God's glorious character breaks onto the canvas of human history and makes known the glory of his abundant mercy, his great love, and the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us. It's because of his character and for the display of his glory that he decided to save and rescue sinners. It's not because he saw something good in us, 
It's not because we were deserving of this mercy, but when we were dead in our trespasses, God pours out his mercy and love because that's who he is and that's what he loves to do. It's like grandparents who just can't help themselves but to give gift after gift after gift after gift to their grandchildren. And so too our God, without hesitation, freely pours out his great love to his redeemed children. The same God that we saw in the Old Testament who revealed himself to Moses as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love is the same God we see here in Ephesians 2. His character has not changed and his love did not end. We also need to see that God's love is displayed in his sovereignty over salvation. If you just look at Ephesians chapter 1 with me at the beginning, you see that it was in love that God prepared a plan to take dead sinners and make them holy before the world was even ever created. As we look in our passage, Paul makes it very clear that the creator of the universe decides to display his sovereign love by taking dead and rebellious sinners and making them part of his family, a plan that he had in place before the foundation of the world. So then the question remains, again, how does God impart this love towards us? We can hear about God, we can hear about his love, but how do we actually experience this love of God? How do we know this love personally? The answer is in verse 5. He says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And the key phrase here is together with Christ. It kind of seems like a throwaway phrase sometimes when we read in our Bibles, but this is crucial in our passage. God imparts his great love towards us by uniting us with his perfect son, Jesus, who is the exact imprint of his nature and of his love. So since we were dead in our trespasses and sins, with with no hope of making ourselves right before God in our own strength, we needed someone to fulfill the law for us. Someone who could obey God when we couldn't. Someone who could resist the devil when we would have given in. And someone who could defeat death because we were already dead. Someone who could satisfy God's wrath on our behalf. So as the scriptures say, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In order to be saved from God, we needed to be united to the Son of God. And this is just incredible as we look at our passage because you'll see in verse 1 to 3, God addresses each aspect of our fallenness with our union with Christ. Look, if you have your Bibles, just look at this. In verse 1, it says, we are dead in our sins. But in verse 5, it says, we are made alive together with Christ. In verse 2 and 3, it says, we are slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But in verse 6, It says we are raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. That signifies our victory over Satan, sin, and death. Look at verse 3. In verse 3 it says we are objects of wrath. But in verse 7, 
We are objects of immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. And again in verse 3, we were born with a sin nature. But in verse 10, as we'll get to, it says we were created or recreated in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Christ is our remedy for sin. And sin has no dominion over us because it had no power over Jesus. Amen. That's good. And furthermore, since we are united with Christ, we get to share in his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. When God sees us, he sees Christ. Our position is no longer in Adam, it is in Christ. In Christ, we see and experience the greatest love this world has ever known. Do you know this love? Do you know this love? And if you do, I really hope that these truths refresh your heart today. But as I said earlier, I worry that we are so well acquainted with Jesus loves me that we'd rather sing a different song and we forget the miracle of Christ's love towards us. I wonder how many of us, when we have gone through seasons um, of darkness where God's love may seem very far away, we begin to pray for God to just show us a miracle, show us a sign that somehow, Lord, you're here. I understand that you're here. And I don't think it's wrong to ask God to increase your faith. Yet I wonder how many of us, when you greeted one another today, thought to yourselves, I am, I am shaking the hands with a miracle of God. This person I'm shaking hands with, they were dead, but now they're alive. They were enslaved to Satan, but now they're free in Christ. And I, I wonder, I bet I can experience Christ's love with this person today. This is a miracle of God. Um, just recently, my wife and I took a trip to, to China. Uh, that's where she was born, and there was a lot of Got to see a lot of family, traveled to five cities all over China, and saw a lot of really cool things. But the coolest part of the trip wasn't um, the Great Wall or something that we, we saw, but it was when we sat down for a meal with uh, some Chinese Christians after the Easter service that we had worshipped with them. Now granted, I didn't know, everything was in Mandarin, so I didn't know what was going on at first, but then I asked Jessica, hey, Jessica, what are they, what are they talking about? What's going on? They seem really excited. She goes, they're sharing their testimonies with one another. And, and these, these Christians, these Chinese Christians, weren't, weren't new to each other. These were friends. These are people that they, they've known their history. They know how they've been saved. But this is commonplace for them to recount the many ways that God's love has been shown to them, especially through their testimony. And I wonder why we don't do this more uh, in the States Maybe it's because, you know, I even hear Christians say, you know, I have, I have a boring testimony. You know, I was saved really young. Nothing really crazy happened. Well, after reading this text, I hope you think something crazy did happen to you. You were dead, and now you are alive. And each of us is a miracle of God. We, we don't. We don't realize what has happened to us when we were born again. It is more powerful than the Red Sea parting more devastating than the walls of Jericho falling, and more awe-inspiring than the feeding of the 5,000. 
For when God united us to Christ through faith, the enemy who enslaved us was defeated. The walls of our heart fell over and our hungry soul was fed. This is the power of God's great love towards us. And this is the beauty of gathering with the saints on the Lord's day. We get to be reminded that those who are dead are now alive. Those who were enslaved are now free, and those who were destined for hell are now citizens of heaven. God's love in Christ is certainly greater than we can imagine. So we've seen that our sin is worse than we realize. God's love is greater than we can imagine. And lastly, Christ's amazing grace will surely lead us home. Look at our last verses with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul had, if you remember, Paul mentioned briefly in verse 5 about this grace But now he circles back, verses 8 to 10, to unpack the nature of this grace and how we should rightly live in this grace. So then, what's so amazing about this grace? Well, we see in verse 8 that this grace is first a gift from God. And this gift is received by faith. And it is not because of anything we have done to deserve it. As Joe said, I was going to talk a little about my time at Michigan State. Well, I was there, I worked again as a manager for the football team, and so what we did was I got the practices ready, kind of was with the linebackers for, uh, for a time, you know, got to be on the field for the games, so there was a lot of really cool perks to the job. And one of the, one of the coolest perks was that I got to use the Michigan State football uh, weight room for free, anytime I really wanted. I know many of you are thinking, you probably should have used more of that perk than you did. I'm like, yeah, I should have. Um, but anyway, uh, the whole facility, as you can imagine, uh, it was just filled with like motivational pictures and quotes to kind of get you pumped up for the lift. And one, one of the signs, one of the quotes that has always stuck with me said this. It says, the best things in life are earned and never given. It always stuck with me because this could, couldn't be further from the truth. Again, while hard work is a godly trait, And we must never feel like we're entitled to anything. However, we must remember that the best thing in life has been given to us by Christ. And it cannot be earned. If we strive to earn God's grace, we will have missed the meaning of grace. And if we miss the meaning of grace, we miss the glory of Christ. And we diminish the work of Christ at the cross. The only thing we have earned in this life is death because of our sin. But God, through Christ, offers us this free gift of grace to all who believe. And this free gift of grace is received through faith. And this saving faith is not simply like kind of a a gut feeling or a blind trust. But this faith is a result of personally knowing what God has done, a personal conviction that we are in desperate need of forgiveness and a personal trust in Christ alone for eternal life. 
This faith is personal. It is not a faith of your grandma or grandpa or of your parents. It is your personal faith. And this faith says, it declares, that we personally need to be forgiven. And this faith affirms that we have nothing good in ourselves apart from Christ. And faith understands that we would have no heart to believe unless the grace of Christ had not already been working in our hearts. And Paul makes this clear in verses 8 to 9 that the whole process of salvation is not our own doing, not a result of works, so that no one has a ground for boasting. Yet, we so often live in such a way that indicates that we are saved by our works. We think we are. When we serve, we try to make sure people notice. When we read our Bibles and pray, we expect God to give us a good day. When we interact with others, we compare our righteousness and our sins with others. And when we come to worship together, we check it off a list that we have created in our hearts. We so badly want a participation ribbon from God. And we may, again, we may quickly affirm, oh yeah, I'm, I'm totally, I'm saved by grace, saved by grace. But then we just live in such a way that shows that God's grace isn't enough. When we see this in ourselves, we must repent. And I, often songs come to my mind when I see this in my heart. And this one comes to mind today. That nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. God's grace is only amazing because it comes from God. And his grace not only has the power to raise you from the dead, but the power to keep you in his grace until he calls you home. So then, what do we do with this incredible grace that we've been given? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul reminds us that here, that grace not only saves us from something, but it saves us to something. It saves us from God's wrath, and it saves us to good works. We are still saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but faith True faith is never alone. Christ has promised that the amazing grace we receive by faith will bear fruit in our lives. Those who have been truly saved will be changed. And we see this even in our passage. Again, in 1 and 2, we see that we walked in sin. But then in verse 10, we see that God has a new path of grace for us to walk in. And these prepared works are simply obeying God's commands in Scripture. And now our, our obedience does not give us grounds for boasting, but so that others may boast in the glory that the Lord has done, in the work that he's done in our hearts. If you guys remember uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 5, he says, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and then do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are God's city on a hill, a trophy of his grace, his workmanship, displaying who he is and everything that he has done for us. And I think when we truly understand the gospel of grace and what he saved us from, we will begin to delight in the commands of God and strive to walk in love towards others. 
we will be quick to forgive, quick to repent, and ready to see that all of life is grace. But church, it will be impossible for us to walk in this grace and live joyfully and joyfully give grace to others if we do not remember the grace that we've been given in Christ Jesus when we first believed. Close with this. My, my former pastor, he, he said it best when he wrote an article a few years ago that we have two options as, as Christians, two ways to see the world. Either looking at your life and through the world through the goggles of fairness or the glasses of grace. With the goggles of fairness, you will always come home grumbling that you're underpaid, undervalued, and underappreciated. With the goggles of fairness, you will always be more aware of other people's successes and failures. With the goggles of fairness, you will always be cognizant of whether you're being ignored or recognized, constantly sizing up, always calculating, always feeling like you're owed something by your friends, by your family, and by God. Yet, if you put on the glasses of grace, you'll reckon that most days are a whole lot better than you deserve. And on really hard days, you'll fight to believe that even God is working this for good. With the glasses of grace, you'll smile when other people succeed and weep with those who mourn. Instead of experiencing life as a series of disappointments and occasions where you're not given the treatment you deserve, instead, you'll experience all of life as a gift, a gift of grace. You'll see evidences of grace all around you. And you'll be quick to celebrate the grace you see in someone else or given to someone else. And when you look at life with nothing but the fairness goggles on, you will constantly feel like you've been put in last place when you deserved to be first. But when life is seen through the glasses of grace, you'll learn the joy of feeling like you've been put first when you know you're last. This gospel of grace reminds us that our sin is worse than we realize. God's love is greater than we can imagine. And Christ's amazing grace will surely lead us home. So I ask you, church, what, what glasses are you wearing today? The goggles of fairness or the glasses of grace? And have you grown so accustomed to the gospel, this gospel of grace, that you've forgotten the ruin that Christ has saved you from. But we can take heart and praise the Lord because God's love never ends and Christ's grace never runs out. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us walk with those who wear the glasses of grace, ready to give grace, to see grace, and to remember the glorious grace we've received in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we so often forget your gospel of grace. We often think that you owe us something. And we forget that we were meant to give grace to others. Father, I just ask that you would just help us just today to walk in the works that you have prepared before us. Not so that we can glory in ourselves, but so that others can boast in how good you are. 
And Lord, I just ask if there's anybody in this room who does not know the saving faith of Jesus Christ, that today that you would just open their eyes, that you would break the chains, that you would bring them from death to life today and to know the great grace that you have given us. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.